0: You are listening to the sound of a completely new screen experience, a startling new kind of excitement, the most incredible adventure that man could ever achieve.
1: Four men and a beautiful girl, off on a fantastic voyage, actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe. When you come out, you may never
0: look at yourself in the same way again.
2: That's the 1966 movie Fantastic Voyage. And on the program today, we're going to take you on a fantastic voyage of our own, into even tinier parts of the human body.
1: It's like, like looking into a cave, you have little, little bumpy walls and all that sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> because we've never seen a cell from the inside out, you're not quite sure what you see, but... It's not looking smooth, it's looking bumpy and lumpy, you know, it's it's looking like you'd imagine what a cell would be like as you get closer to it. It's not going to be like the pictures that you see in your biology textbook where it's all nice and flat. it's actually got some sort of texture to it. We know they're made up of proteins and fats and things like that, these membranes. So for them to have this sort of texture about them is really quite nice. I had no idea what a cell
2: would look like apart from those biology textbook images. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even necessarily know what you're looking for
1: yet, is that right? No. no, what I wanted to see was these yellow blobs which are vesicles which have been stained accordingly. Now when you, we go out of the cell you can't see them, right? but when we get into the middle they suddenly appear. And it shows that visually we can actually get in the middle and we're actually looking at the cell from the inside out and from the outside in. And that's really important. Like with anything, you know, as soon as they got the microscope, they were able to ask questions. As soon as they started getting telescopes, they asked questions. This small, hopefully they to ask different questions.
2: It's right on that level, isn't it? Mm, Like the invention of a microscope or a telescope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, the show that tells stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. In this episode, we're looking at personalised medicine, treatments tailored specifically to your genes.
0: My favourite bird is rainbow lawkits and budgies and kin parrots.
3: When kids are sick, it affects their whole family. And because you don't, they don't find out if the cancer's gone for five years, and these are quite young kids, like they're toddlers or, or a little bit older, it almost ruins a whole family's childhood, the childhood of this kid and the whole family around it. If you can stop that happening, that, that would be the ultimate aim.
0: When Thomas was first diagnosed with leukaemia, we were in complete shock. The day we came in, we weren't at all expecting our son to be diagnosed with cancer. I think for the first three months, we walked around in shock, not knowing what to do. When we met a lot of the other families who were treated with the same type of cancer that Thomas has, ALL, it was quite evident that a lot of the children reacted differently. The treatment may have been the same, but the outcome of the treatments for the kids was quite different and that was quite confronting, particularly with one family that we met where it was the same diagnosis as Thomas and he didn't make it. So that's where we think the research is so important.
1: Personalised medicine, sometimes called precision medicine, is we're going to find out why you're you, why your tumour is behaving the way it is, identify the underlying biology that's working this thing and then identify drugs that affect that biology and make a tailor-made recipe of drugs that's going to affect you the best. And it's going to get rid of your tumour but give you minimum side effects. That's the ultimate goal of personalised medicine. Dan Catchpool is a researcher at Westmead Children's
2: Hospital and an adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: Well, we have two patients come in. They both have exactly the same symptoms, and the doctors will look at those symptoms and they'll say, we've seen a lot of these kids with this sort of type of tumour. We've all treated them on this protocol of drugs, and 80% of the kids have done well. They'll treat these patients, and one will live and one will die. There's something else going on that's not seen in their symptoms, their pathology tests, that's hidden within the tumour and hidden within the patient that's, causing that patient not to respond very well to therapy. So with this genomic work, we can actually try to identify those individual traits.
2: To understand the work Dan's doing, we're going to need to take you on our own fantastic voyage into your DNA. You probably know what a piece of DNA is supposed to look like, double helix, long ladder twisted into the shape of a spiral staircase. Now, each rung of our spiral ladder is a molecule called a nucleotide, Nucleotides come in four varieties, A, G, T, and C. Now let's imagine that the rungs of our spiral staircase ladder are four big, thick bass guitar strings. This little riff of nucleotides is inside you and me and Thomas and every other human being on Earth. Codes like these program how we look and how our body operates. Basically, everything about our physical bodies is programmed by different combinations of these four letters. And 99% of our bass riffs are all the same. You. Me. Thomas. Former United Nations Secretary-General Kofi Annan. But every now and again say, 1% of the time. That one note, that different note, it's a mutation. It's called a SNP. And that difference is very important to medical researchers like Dan because that SNP means that medicine that works for me might not work for you.
1: If you have a particular variation in a particular gene called the P450 system, this P450 system helps you deal with your body being insulted by lots of different chemicals and drugs. Right, it helps you to sort of identify that's foreign, and let's get rid of it. If you have a particular SNP in one particular gene, you won't respond very well to a very commonly used drug for blood thinning called warfarin. So they're now starting to do that as a clinical test. If you had cardiac problems, then you'd be given warfarin to thin your blood a bit. But if it's, you've got the mutation or this this variance in your system, then don't use warfarin or something else. So they're starting to use that to help tailor treatments down to the individual. So if you and I go to
2: hospital, I might be treated with warfarin and you might be treated with a different drug, one that's better suited to your little genetic code bass riff improvisation. But these little improvs aren't the only way we differ. To you and I, these strings of code might seem like a bass riff, but to our bodies, they sound like a recipe.
0: Flour, eggs, eggs, flour, milk,
2: sugar, sugar, milk, 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 eggs. Your gene's base riff code is a recipe. But it's not a recipe for cupcakes. It's a recipe to make proteins. It takes all of those nucleotides and copies them exactly.
0: One cup of A, two tablespoons of G, a teaspoon of C, and just a pinch of tea.
2: Then it bakes that copy into a protein.
0: (sighs) Nothing like a protein fresh from the oven.
2: Then that protein springs into action doing whatever it's programmed to do to keep your body working. But sometimes the recipe makes something dodgy, like meatloaf. And that dodgy protein is harmful for the body. And like all meatloaves, they are all bad in their own way. But don't worry, Dan and his cohort are already helping to create drugs to target some of those harmful meatloafy proteins.
1: There are a lot of new drugs coming on the market that are very targeted to very specific entities and cells. They're not generalised inhibitors. They're precision medicine. They're targeting specific things. Find a particular protein and then the drug sort of buries itself into that protein, in a particular pocket in the protein and stops this, that thing from functioning. It's giving clinicians a real bank of drugs that they can then call upon to try to target very specific mechanisms that may be present in that particular patient's cancer cells. And they're starting to do tests where they're screening for a range of these things to try to give doctors
2: more ammunition in their arsenal. A drug tailored to you and whoever else shares that same particular line of genetic code. Anyway, that whole baking process, that's how a gene expresses itself. Some people play sport, some people draw pictures, some write poetry, but genes express themselves by baking by making proteins. So this baking process is called a gene expression. Gene expressions (sighs) and SNPs are responsible for making us 99% the same and 1% different from one another. These differences are like genetic fingerprints. A lot of people share a lot of similarities, but ultimately we are all unique. At the moment they're being used to separate people into two groups like with the warfarin example earlier. You're either in the group where the drug works on you, or you're in the group where the drug doesn't work on you. And in that case, the doctor looks for a different treatment. The difference between these people is that one base note or SNP in their DNA. But looking at just one SNP or one expression is a bit too boring for our researcher, Dan. What Dan is really interested in is looking at multiple SNPs and expressions at once and identifying the combinations which best identify what kind of genes a person has so he can pigeonhole us into different groups that benefit from different kinds of medical treatment.
1: There's a group over in the States, in in St Jude's Hospital, Memphis, that published a paper. They identified in a group of leukaemia patients a set of 15 genes that could identify patients that responded well to their therapies or didn't respond well to their therapies. And this was looking at patients before their bone marrow from their leukaemia cells, and they said that when these 15 genes are on, the patients respond badly, and when they're not on, they respond well.
2: To Dan, finding these 15 genes is like finding 15 precious gems in a huge quarry full of rocks. These genes were somehow related to common leukaemia treatments. If they could look at a patient's genes and see that the ones that were expressing themselves by busily baking away at proteins, then that meant the medicines weren't going to work. If those 15 genes were being lazy because they were asleep or something, then it meant the medicines would work. Dan and his colleagues got to work recreating this experiment.
1: And we took the 15 genes over a similar size set of patients, but when you looked at the two sets of groups and looked at their response to chemotherapy, there was no change. There was one drug, though, that was different between the treatment protocol used by St. Jude's and the treatment protocol used by Westmead. The one drug difference was a drug called etoposide, the drug that affects the way DNA copies itself, whereas the drug used in Westmead was anthracycline or some other sort of drug. The trouble was the 15 genes that we looked at, when we looked at try to understand what they did, there wasn't enough information to tell us anything about the underlying biology that those genes may represent. So we took our sets of genes and some other data sets around and we did a data mining strategy called Random Forest and we sort of expanded that set of gene number to give us a larger set of genes, 250 genes. And when we actually did that and we got a common set of genes across all of them, the genes gave us enough information to identify some of the biology that may be underpinning the difference between these two groups that may also reflect why those tumours responded better to the autoposite and not to the other drug.
2: So, when they dug deeper into their quarry of genes, they found that a certain combination of 250 genes could point them in the right direction in terms of how to treat a patient. But this is only the beginning. Up until this point in the story, we've been talking about separating patients into two groups. You're either in the group where the drug helps you, or you're in the group where the drug doesn't work. But why just stop at two groups? If they get enough data, they could identify enough genetic variation to split those two groups into four, those four groups into eight, eight groups into 16, until there are billions of groups. And Every person on the planet effectively has their own individualized group that has their own individualized treatment. And as you can imagine, you can't just put all of this data into an Excel spreadsheet. It gets really confusing. Dan wanted a new kind of tool to really get amongst the data, to see it from any angle he wanted, really explore it, and move it around. So he could uncover more genes that unlocked clues about how to treat a patient. He wanted to be in a room where this information was floating all around him.
1: 14 years ago, I was invited to go and visualise this thing called a uh, cave software. I, I was interested in caving at the time. And, and I was taken into this room that had screens all around and put 3D goggles on and looked at all these blobs spinning around in 3D in this immersive space. It was my first introduction to immersive space. At the same time, I was just getting introduced to this idea that produce these 3D plots of clouds of spots. So it's a low-dimensional visualisation of high-dimensional data. And I thought, well, why couldn't we put that in immersive space and if each one of those individual spots was a patient, then I can actually start seeing individual patients. So that was 12 years ago, and then Paul came on the scene and we started talking about it, and and we've been collaborating together for a long time on that very thing. So it's been a long journey in that regard, but we've stuck to the dream and here we are.
2: In all this time that you've had this idea, you haven't seen these plotted in... 3D yet? Yeah. Yeah. You haven't? Um,
3: yeah,
1: not in immersive. Not in immersive.
2: Yeah. It's quite a milestone in your 12 year mm-hmm. journey. Yep, 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 yep.
1: I'm awesome. not quite wetting myself yet, but. I'm, I'm quietly excited about it. Actually, we're starting to see some momentum. I don't know what the historical analogy is, but I suppose there was some time when Galileo looked through
2: a telescope for the first time. He's like, oh wow, they're all floating balls out there. That's like I thought, that's That's really cool.
1: Yeah, well I think the scientists always have those sort of eureka moments where you think this is the way we need to go. And everyone has them and they they follow them through and (laughs) they get certain levels of success. This is very exciting.
2: We went into the UTS data arena. In case you haven't heard our previous episode featuring the data arena, here's a little flashback.
0: These are 3D glasses that we'll wear. we will just take a minute to power these on.
2: Oh, wow. So it looks like we're on some kind of savannah or desert, just 360 degrees like we're really there. There's a sunrise, and the clouds are just shooting across the sky. You can see the trees blowing in the wind. It's all at high speed. Oh, (laughs) now we're at the beach somewhere, and and the waves just crashed all over us. We're lost in the surf.
0: The uh, the UTS Data Arena is a full surround 3D stereo immersive experience. Um, It's kind of the next step beyond what you might see in Hoyts where you put on the glasses and you can see 3D stereo. Here in the data arena, the screen goes completely right around you, 360 degrees. Some people are calling it the Star Trek holodeck.
2: If you're not familiar with Star Trek, the holodeck was an empty room in which the spaceship's crew could tell the computer to simulate just about any place or simulation that they wanted. Um, When it first appeared in Star Trek in the 90s, it was a very advanced depiction of virtual reality.
0: This woodland pattern is quite popular, sir. Perhaps because it duplicates Earth so well. Coming here. Almost makes me feel human myself. I didn't believe these simulations could be this real. The rear wall. I can't see it. We're right next to it.
2: Incredible. The weird thing is, Star Trek's holodeck was in a square room. Now that I think about it, in a square room, it doesn't make any sense. Ben's room's round, which makes way more sense. It's a continuous movie screen that joins up seamlessly at both ends. Even the door we came in is part of the movie screen. Computer, take us back to the cave. This is incredible. I've been to Wambian Caves, and you don't get to see it from these kinds of angles no
0: I, it's it's such a large data set that you really get to explore the cave all right
2: back to the present time i'm standing with dan in the data arena and he's seeing his data plotted in three dimensions all around him for the first time how does it feel to see it all around you
1: well 12 years ago i saw the same sort of thing i thought wouldn't it be nice if that blob was a leukemia patient well there we've got a leukemia patient it's great
2: We're inside a galaxy of blobby bubbles floating all around us. All of the bubbles have a little red dot in the middle. That red dot represents a child with leukaemia. Some of the bubbles are out on their own in the genetic wilderness, and others are forming big nebulous blobs, big genetic communities of similar patients. It looks like someone's thrown a bunch of oil in the air and taken a 3D photograph of it and and then you're kind of zooming around those blobs of oil.
3: Yeah, you could could probably colour them by whether they relapsed or not. Because the idea is hopefully the ones that relapse are close together Mm. in this space.
2: Paul Kennedy is a data science expert at UTS.
3: This collaboration with the hospital has been for more than 12 years now and the way that we do it is that I take the data side and my colleague uh, Dan Catchwell takes the, the biological side. Darren's doing this plot as we speak, like he's programming oh, yeah.
1: it now. Programming as <laughs> yeah, we speak. This is, this, is, this is research in real time. So this is your galaxy universe idea coming to life. What we've done here is a different way of visualising, so we can actually look at it in the, in the arena in 3D. But the nice thing is actually morphing the icons for each of the individual patients so that they go like teardrops and, and odd shapes, and they blob together, showing relationship how they're related to each other based on whatever criteria you want to look okay. at. So it's a different way of visualising it. You can see how they're, they're sort of, some of these blobs are starting to sort of merge together and, and link together. Some blobs are big, some are small. The point
2: is, you can see clear relationships between the patients. You can see how they form genetic groups.
1: That's exciting. That's, That's really exciting.
2: If the data is arranged properly, then those bubble clusters represent groups of people who are genetically similar at least in terms of responses to leukaemia treatments.
1: It's allowing us to be a bit more dynamic with the data. It means that these graphs, these graphical tools, aren't static things that we just look up and say, OK, that's going to stick up on the wall, that's our graph, you know. It's actually allowing us a dynamic interaction with the data. So even the coordinate plots there, you can actually go in and, and you can select individual patients or individual or groups of patients and, and then start interrogating a bit more deeply.
2: So Dan and Paul are going to be doing a lot of tinkering with the X, Y, and Z axes, shuffling a few genetic snips and expressions from one axis to another, and seeing if that gives them a more meaningful representation of the data. So this data will be rearranged and rearranged and many times over until some yes, so clusters emerge?
3: So is trying to choose the best 200 attributes, and maybe there could be combinations of attributes to try and separate the relapsed and the not relapsed as much as possible so that then we, we can make a prediction with it. Ideally, we'd want the ones that relapsed. Hopefully, they would be near each other. That's ideally what we want to do. So that when we predict a new point in there and they end up close to another patient, then you can sort of hope that they have a similar outcome.
2: If they can arrange the data so that all of the kids who relapsed are all clustered together then they've effectively invented a machine that can tell you whether a child who has leukaemia is likely to relapse or not. All they have to do is project the new patient into this bubble galaxy, and if they land within the relapse nebula, they know the patient needs ongoing treatment. If the child is projected outside of the relapse nebula, the patient probably won't relapse, and they can get on with their life.
1: Yeah, two patients that were mapped together on these 3D plots and are very similar, but one lived and one died. One was treated on an old protocol and survived, and the other one was treated on a new protocol and didn't do so well. And then your new patient lobs in the middle of those, similar biology based on a more complicated, informative mix of information, not just one or two genes, but a mixture of all things. And then a clinician can use that to say, we mightn't put that patient on that new protocol. We might actually treat them with a more standard older protocol that we know worked. And we'll manage the side effects, but we don't want them to die. <laughs> you know. So you can make you can see how it can inform clinical decisions mm. just by mapping them out. The other thing we can do, though, in this, this space where our visual analytics guys come in is that we can find our patient of interest and the plot will move and then it will rotate around that patient of interest. If you choose another patient, it will move and rotate around that patient. But it also means that we can then Ask okay of the 250 features, some of them are really interesting because they've got drugs we can use to maybe treat these patients. And you can ask, well, which patients have that particular gene on and how are they related and so on? So you can start moving things around, colour coding things. And you can even start removing some of the 250 features that you've used to make the plot and just say remap it based on just those 10 features. Often when we have these three-dimensional plots, we're looking at it from the outside in. But with the data arena, we have the opportunity of actually putting it into this immersive space, this circular room with screens all around you, and actually standing in the middle of the plot, and with your appropriate 3D goggles on and all these things, be able to get in the middle and actually look and have it all spinning around, just like a galaxy, just like you'd be looking at when you're looking at, you know, we're on the Earth, but we're trying to look at the Sun or Mercury or the planets or stars, and we have it all spinning around us. This kind of approach is
2: great for cancer research because cancer is not just one disease. It's hundreds of different diseases and maybe more. Do you expect that you'll be kind of subdividing things that were previously labelled as one disease and going, hang on, they're actually different diseases?
1: Yep. They're already doing that. When I first started a number of years ago, a tumour called modelloblastoma was just one disease. Now they've done this mining in and found that there's actually four different subtypes of tumours based on their deeper genetic information. And this wouldn't have been apparent just from the way the patients walked in the door. It was apparent with the way they were actually treated. So some of these patients, because they've now got this subclassification, they can now that these patients are a bit more higher risk, so we to treat them differently. Other patients we can treat the same we have before.
2: These guys are looking at a certain kind of leukaemia common in children.
1: Acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, which is what we study as the most common tumour in kids, it's a tumour of the blood. It has to be treated slightly differently than solid tumours. Obviously you can't do surgery because it's coming from the bone marrow and you can't take that out. They do do bone marrow transplants, but that's a last-case scenario. It's a worst-case scenario. So leukaemia is often treated with basically chemicals that kill the cells, the poisons Because it's a blood tumour, it's in your veins, you need to give it drugs and they go through your veins and captures all of them. And then they're given five weeks of very intensive therapy. makes them very sick. And at that stage, hopefully, when they look at the blood down the microscope, they won't see any cancer cells or they'll see very few. Then they're put on a a maintenance therapy, which is a low levels of drug for a longer period of time, a couple of years. And if they get to five years, they're deemed cured um, although it's always the case where six, seven, eight, nine, ten years later the cancer comes back. So we're doing very well with our cancer therapy for leukemia. Eighty percent of kids are eventually getting cured. They go through hell to get there, but they get cured. To five years, we still got you know twenty percent that cause us great deals of problems. Tumors just don't respond to the drugs and just don't go away. And this isn't just for cancer treatment. This kind
2: of approach could be used for all sorts of diseases it's kind of a, a blueprint for how to approach any kind of rare disease yeah,
1: yeah it is and it also helps us deal with the imbalanced nature of the disease as well that we have a lot of in leukemia like i said 80 percent of patients survive eventually but 10 to 20 percent sort of relapse and have real troubles and 10 percent die we have this this problem and so we need these sorts of data mining approaches to do that
2: so i, I imagine in the future that we'll go to the doctor and instead of a question like, what's your blood type, they might request your genetic sequence, your entire genetic sequence, and go, okay, you're this yep. type, and treat you accordingly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's not
1: going to just affect cancer. It's going to affect um, the understanding of all sorts of drugs.
2: I'm reading this biography of Albert Einstein, and he always thought in pictures, and he raved about hmm. thinking in pictures and really visualizing what you're understanding so that's not just numbers on a page. Yeah. And that's what you guys are really doing. You're, yeah realising that primacy of the importance of being able to visualise things and to
1: really get to intimately understand it. Talking to our clinicians the other day at a workshop we ran, they essentially still do that. They look at a bunch of images. They look at you know everything from microscopy images and information from the patient and you know how the tumour is growing and some biochemistry results. And they, they build up a picture of what their patient is like. And it's not easy for them to make a decision about what's going on in that tumour and how best to treat them. And so to some degree they're already personalising by capturing information and making a picture. And Mm. we're doing the same thing. It's sort of very much a sense-making strategy, trying to make sense of complicated information by getting rid of all the noise and capturing just the most relevant. By making sense of it, then when you go in and explore, you're not necessarily answering questions, you're actually posing better questions.
3: The data sets that people work with now is, is just really, really large person on their own just can't see those patterns so you need to help people to see those patterns and that's what data mining or data analytics is all about it's trying to it's almost like superpowers for people to try to understand and make sense of these big data sets.
0: We can't hold him back at the moment the things that he loves to do he loves to play cricket we go swimming we just want to be a kid and enjoying all the things we love to do.
2: You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from the digital age. Subscribe to our podcast by typing Think Digital Futures into iTunes or your favourite podcast app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. Thanks to our production assistant, Jake Morecambe. I'm Lawrence Bull. Talk to you next time.